Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So we have made it to the end of another week of ridiculousness and insanity. But I do want to go ahead and say, first off, this episode is probably going to be a little angry because there is some things to talk about here that have gone on this past week that I I am just baffled by and kind of blown away by. And I'm just kind of trying to figure out where certain people are coming from with certain things. But however, this episode will be letter free. There will be no discussions of any letters in this episode. If you missed my last episode with Jesse Single, um, talked about the counter letter that was written in response to the Harper's letter and his involvement in that. And we also discussed Barry Weiss's open letter. So if you want to hear any of that, you can skip back to the last episode. But now we are going to move on from letters. Hopefully, maybe unless somebody else writes another letter. Who knows? It's apparently open letter season. But Let's go ahead and start where I have been starting, and that is with the unemployment numbers. So for the week ending on July 11th, we had an additional 1.3 million people file first-time unemployment claims. Like I've been saying, this seems to be kind of where we're plateauing right now, is anywhere between like 1.3 to 1.5 million a week. And this seems to be our normal for right now. Um, Just as an update from last week, there still has not been any congressional movement that I've heard of on the the federal unemployment insurance. So to the best of my knowledge, it is still set to expire. I believe next week will be the last week of eligibility for it. And obviously, I, I don't want to be a broken record, but clearly this unemployment situation is nowhere near under control. Um, I saw that under normal circumstances, and I, I put this out there just for comparison purposes, under normal, not cuckoo, crazy pants circumstances, unemployment claims, first-time unemployment claims, are usually somewhere around 220000 a week. So clearly, we are way, way, way past that. And like I've been saying, it's better than the $9 million and the $6 million that we were getting in the first couple of weeks. But this has still just been a steady over $1 million a week. We've been here for 17 weeks now straight of over a million new claims each week. Um, the federal, like I said, the federal unemployment insurance is about to run out. And August is going to suck. <laughs> if you are on the federal unemployment assistance, I really don't know what to tell you at this point. Like I said, I've not seen any kind of congressional movement on this. So I will cross my fingers for you and hope that something gets figured out because... Like I said, this this is not, I think everybody thought that by this time that the unemployment situation would be drastically better than it currently is. And clearly this is a situation that is not anywhere near under control. It's a situation that is still, still ongoing. We're still losing new jobs every week. And I'm... I'm worried about what's going to happen, not only now if we go into a second lockdown, but obviously if people lose that $600 a week, that's going to affect the economy too, because all of a sudden these people are not going to have expendable income, let alone possibly income to actually pay their bills, to pay their rent, their mortgage, their whatever. So this is going to be rough no matter what. So buckle up, everybody. August is probably going to suck on the economic slash unemployment side of things, but 
to a a tiny bit of good news, also piggybacking off of a topic I talked about last week, um, the student visa situation. Um, like I pointed out, there were several lawsuits filed against the Trump administration pertaining to the policy that was put out that if you were already in the United States on a student visa and that your university was going to either not either like have full-time online classes or not have enough in-person classes for you to meet the minimum that would normally exist for you to have to like go attend to keep your student visa current. Yeah, that got rescinded without it even really having to go to court. So the Trump administration backed off of that. So if you are a student and you are here on your student visa, you're here on your F1 visa and your school has gone to a fully online format or a hybrid format, you're good. You can still stay which that's great, wonderful news. I wish we could get to a point where immigrants writ large didn't have to deal with these sorts of situations all the damn time where you're constantly, it's like, it's not as bad right now because there's so many other things going on right now, but just these, these constant seismic shifts in policy that leave you kind of wondering like, what is my legal status? Can I stay? Do I have to go? What do I have to do? Like this, this constant panic that you have to deal with as an immigrant until you have full legal status in the U.S. under the Trump administration has just been, I, I can't imagine, it has to have been so, so stressful on these people. And even those who are trying to quote unquote do it legally, they get fucked with too. So it's just such such an insanely stressful situation. I wish that it wasn't this way. Hopefully, maybe in the future it won't be. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen in November. But at least for right now, there's a little ray of sunshine on the immigration front to where we're not kicking out all these students who are already here and are not violating anything through any fault of their own. Like I said, they have no control over this. They don't control whether their university is going fully online or not. So thankfully, they get to stay, continue their education on schedule in the United States. But moving on to a story that probably would have gotten a lot more attention if this country would stop being so absolutely goddamn crazy pants all the time. Um, Wednesday night, there was what was originally thought to be a Twitter hack. For about an hour or so on Wednesday night, all of the blue checks were locked out of posting on Twitter and it was the most glorious hour ever. No, I'm just kidding. To all my blue check friends, I, I love you guys and I, I missed you. But what happened was somebody, and like I said, I'm going to keep putting hacked in air quotes until we get to what actually happened. Somebody hacked into Twitter and took control of several prominent blue check accounts. I know they got Joe Biden's, they got Barack Obama's, they got Elon Musk's, they got a couple of other ones. And they pushed out like this cryptocurrency scheme where it was like, People were thinking that obviously it's Joe Biden or Barack Obama or whoever saying that, hey, if you send me some of your Bitcoin, I'll send you a whole bunch of mine later on. Which first off, I know Bitcoin ain't what it used to be, but guys, we are in the middle of a global pandemic and an economic crisis. Ain't nobody giving away Bitcoin right now, okay? (laughs) Nobody is giving away Bitcoin. Do not fall for that. But apparently people did, and it seems like the hackers, well, I keep calling them hackers, they're not really hackers, but anyway, I think they got away with about $180,000 worth of Bitcoin. So, come to find out that this wasn't actually a hack. 
What happened is somebody befriended a Twitter employee on a Discord server and paid them, get this, $2,000 for the Twitter employee's root access to accounts. And so through all this, we've kind of found out how Twitter handles things in the background with screenshots and everything. And so basically what it is, is, and I'm not quite sure what this person's job was, but it looks like this would be the kind of access that, say, a customer service rep would have, because basically you could go in and what they did was they changed the emails and the passwords associated with those accounts. And that's how they were able to take control of the account. So like I said, it wasn't really a hack. It was just paying somebody for access to have them go in there and make these changes so that those accounts can be taken over. So they have this dashboard where obviously you can go in and do such a thing. But a couple interesting things that we found out here is on that dashboard, there's a series of buttons. And there's a series of buttons like protected, locked. And then there were two buttons that basically said trends blacklist and search blacklist, which if you clicked on those buttons, theoretically, that account would no longer show up in trends or searches. So yes, shadow banning is real. At least theoretically speaking, somebody can literally go in and shadow ban you from this platform. So there was that. The second thing that I thought was interesting is that Twitter was able to go in and lock out every blue check account, like almost immediately, which tells me that having that blue check verification is not just simply, okay, you went through the background verification, we put the little thing next to your name, that's it. It's a fundamentally different status that you have with Twitter when you have a verified account. And whether or not this was something where the functionality already existed to where you could say, okay, this group of people cannot post, or if it's something where, say, a couple of lines of code could be written on the fly to make such a thing happen, they made such a thing happen very quickly, which is a little scary when you think about it, because that means that you, Twitter could, theoretically, shut down whole groups of people at any time for any reason that functionality exists. And so ultimately what happened is most blue checks got unlocked within that hour. Um, I do know there was a couple of different people who had blue checks who, for one reason or another, had like changed their password recently or something along those lines, who they lost access to their account for a couple of days up to a week. Well, actually not a week because we're not quite there yet, but it was at least a couple of days that they lost access to their accounts. So this wasn't something that Twitter got under control super duper quick. And so, yeah, um, this is kind of frightening to me. And I would almost rather this have been a hack because that is something that you could steel man against in the future. Like if somebody found a security flaw or something like that and was able to exploit it, you could fix that. There's no way to fix somebody taking money for access. Like there's, there's no way to prevent such a thing from happening again. And like, Really? $2,000? Really? I I have $2,000. Um, there's some stuff in some people's DMs I wouldn't mind knowing about. Like, really? $2,000? That's all it takes. And I'm sure there are plenty, plenty of more malicious people out there with much deeper pockets that now that we know that such a thing can happen, may try to do it again. 
Who knows? But another part of the speculation on the topic of DMs was that, okay, so kind of the, the rumor has always been that the real kind of like Twitter apocalypse would be if everybody's DMs got leaked. Knowing what we know now after this hack slash payoff, I mean, technically that could happen very easily because obviously if you change somebody's email and then you change their password, you have complete control over their account, including what's in their DMs. So while that sounds a bit trivial, um, I, I don't know if some big name people would particularly like having their DMs broadcast out to the whole world. So yeah, just a little weird series of events that, like I said, under normal circumstances probably would have got a lot more attention, but it, the the country is just in such a weird fucking place right now that it almost seems weird to talk about a Twitter hack. But yeah, that's kind of kind of scary, especially leading up to the election season that, you know, theoretically you could pay somebody to have that kind of access to every account on Twitter and that there are certain functionalities in the background of Twitter that enable mass blocking, enables specific blocking, enables shadow banning. So yeah, just just a little exposure there into what goes on behind the scenes at twitter.com. But now moving on to the more important story of the week, and that is what the hell is going on in Portland? So this is something that kind of evolved a bit over the week. Um, started seeing reports from people on the ground that there were unmarked federal agents or some sort of agents that nobody quite knew who they were because they weren't wearing markings, they didn't have names, just appearing in Portland and just kind of scooping people up off the street and sticking them in vans and taking them God knows where. So the first speculation I saw along these lines was among like immigration Twitter, where people were kind of speculating that those those agents were CPB. Well, it comes to find out they are. They are Customs and Border Patrol. And they were sent in by DHS to Portland, apparently not at anybody's behest, because both the mayor of Portland and the governor of Oregon have asked DHS to withdraw the troops. Well, I call them troops. Should not call them troops. The whatever the hell you want to call. I, I just call them assholes usually because these are just a CPB or just horrible, horrible, nasty, nasty people. But asking DHS to withdraw them. And the answer was no. So now you have these federal agents here in Portland scooping up people off the damn street. And by the way, none of this is an urban legend or a myth because the acting undersecretary, deputy secretary of DHS, one Ken Cuccinelli, has gone in public several times to brag about the fact that, yes, it is Customs and Border Patrol. Yes, they are wearing unmarked uniforms. And his little way around this is saying, well, they have insignias on them, but they don't have names on the uniforms because we don't want them doxxed. Which, yeah, so you've got people out here who have no names, no identifiers on their uniforms. So I don't know. I guess if you wanted to complain about the way you were treated by one, I don't even know how, where you would start because you don't even have somebody's name. It'd be like that guy over there. What guy? That guy. What's his name? 
I don't know. It wasn't on his uniform. It's, it's shady as fuck. And there is video of them just not scooping up anybody doing anything violent, but just protesters and sometimes not even protesters, sometimes just people in the vicinity of a protest, literally picking them up, putting them into a black van and driving them off. And Cuccinelli has admitted that, yes, that is happening. That what they're doing is they're just picking them up and taking them somewhere for secure, safe questioning. I, I'm sorry, excuse me? I, uh, no. No, th this is not okay. There's nothing, 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 nothing okay about this. But I want to take a moment to say that myself and everybody who toils in the immigration mines told you about this. We told you about the weaponization of DHS. We told you about the militarization of them. We told you what these people were doing on the border. And we warned you that one day, this day would come. That this would never stop at the border. That one day, DHS would unleash these people in U.S. cities. We told you. We tried to warn you. And now here we are. And on the topic of the border, people are learning now that the border is a lot thicker than they thought it was. Legally speaking, the border of the United States for the purposes of CPB being able to operate is 100 miles inland of any border, north, south, east, or west. So yes, Portland does fall in that frame. I think they're like 76 miles, 75, 76 miles away from the coastline. So yeah, what is, what is being done right now in Portland is 100% legal. Now think about that for a second. DHS can send their own agents into a city, into a state, without any kind of permission from said city or state and do whatever the fuck they want under the pretext of, okay, there's a group of people who are surrounding and have taken over this one federal courthouse. That's their justification. And the list of things that DHS released as justification for why they needed to send CPB in is almost laughable. It's almost fucking laughable how thin this excuse is. Basically, it's a list of grievances that involve graffiti, lots of graffiti, 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 all the way down the list. And they shot a couple of fireworks at cops, apparently, why this isn't Portland PD's problem, I, I'm baffled. I don't know. That sounds like a that sounds like a local problem, not a fucking federal problem. And basically, it's under the pretext of, oh, well, this is this this is federal building adjacent, so we can send in federal agents into a city to start picking up people off the fucking street. And I'm just like, I'm blown away by the amount of people. Even people who consider themselves libertarians who are okay with this. Listen, I don't support, I mean, I'm assuming these people are Antifa or related to them somehow. It's Portland, whatever. They're probably a bunch of dirty, smelly, hippie Marxists. I don't care. They have rights too. They have the same rights that I do, that you do, and that everybody else in this country does. And if I don't want to see such a thing happen to anybody that I like or that I agree with or is on my side or part of my tribe, ideologically, to be consistent, I have to be opposed to when that kind of behavior is done against somebody 
who I don't agree with or who isn't on my side or who isn't part of my tribe. There's a lot of people out there trying to justify this shit and I'm sorry, no. Uh-uh. No. That's not ideologically consistent. You don't get to say, oh, because they're Marxist or they're Antifa or they're whatever, which I don't have any proof of any of this. I don't know who the hell these people are. All I know is they're a bunch of people. They've taken over a federal courthouse, did some graffiti and attacked Portland PD. Why the fuck any of this is DHS's concern? I don't know. But they've made it their concern. They've gone into a city. They are literally snatching people off the street and putting them in vans. Like... I'm sorry. No, I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to support that. There is no way that I am ever going to be like, okay, just because it's that group of people, I'm a-okay with the federal government sending in federal troops to pick people up off the street. That's not okay. There's no way, shape, or form, and I don't understand how anybody who identifies as a libertarian can possibly be okay with this. This is the shit that you people have been worried about for fucking decades. Where are you at now? Or was it just that you only worried about it happening to your people or the people you liked? Like, and, and I've been pretty clear about how I feel about people who destroy property in order to protest. I think it's stupid. I think it's a waste of time. I think it's doing the absolute least. I would rather see this kind of energy be put towards actual policy reform. But all that being said, I'm not going to support somebody having their constitutional rights violated just because they're doing some shit I don't agree with. That's not how this works. If you're going to defend people's rights, you have to defend everybody's. It's just like free speech. If you want the right to say what you want to say, well, you have to give that right to somebody else. If you don't want to be scooped up off the street, you don't want to be black bagged, well, then you better damn well say something when somebody else is. And I'm just, I'm, I, I am just so... So baffled by some of the responses to this. I, I'm, I'm shaking my damn head because I don't understand. I don't get it. But to bring it back to something along the lines of we tried to tell you, most native-born people in the United States don't ever really have any kind of interaction with the enforcement arms of DHS. Usually, we deal more with like the surveillance problems wireless warrantless wiretapping, peeping in on people's internet stuff, stuff like that that DHS does. Usually, unless you are on the border or you are here as an immigrant, you don't typically ever have to deal with CPB or ICE. Those are the enforcement arms of DHS. And now, I mean, and Cuccinelli has been very open about this, that not only are they not planning on ever leaving Portland, they plan on doing this in other cities. He has said he plans on taking this nationwide. And between where CPB can organize and where ICE can organize, they can do that. They can legally do that. And now you guys are about to see just how nasty, just how bad these organizations are and how bad DHS is in general. Because this is an organization that of all of the things that have happened during the Trump administration. What has happened to DHS is the most frightening part of it that nobody ever talks about unless you deal with immigration issues because you typically don't think about it. So let me tell you about DHS. This is an organization that is staffed by hardcore Trump loyalists. 
That's how you get a job in DHS, first of all. Second off, there has not been a Senate-confirmed head of DHS, of ICE, of CPB for years. Literally fucking years. And that is because the Trump administration knows that the people who are right now in the acting position, first off, would never, never make it through a Senate confirmation hearing. Not in a million years. And also, by keeping it in this acting position, that makes it very easy for Trump to fire anybody who doesn't do what he wants them to do. It has been the most corrupted, politicized organization in the executive branch. It's absolutely fucking insane. And people are about to find out because now, now that you have, now that you have CPB in a city, you're about to find out just how unaccountable these people are, just how really lawless and just, they can pretty much do anything they want, honestly. Both CPB and ICE pretty much have free reign to do whatever the hell they feel like. And people are about to find out. And that does not make me happy. I mean, it makes me happy to have people find out just how bad DHS is. Because my God, if there is a government organization that needs to be abolished, please, for the love of God, take out DHS and everything underneath it. Burn it to the ground, salt the earth, and swear to never, ever, ever make an organization like that ever again. Because it's, I mean, there's there's no accountability. Like I said, it's completely, completely under the control of Donald Trump. Because like I said, none of these people have been Senate confirmed. I mean, they could be fired at will. I, it's It's nuts. It's absolutely fucking nuts. So I pray that... They don't stay in Portland, although some say that Cuccinelli is trying to be hyperbolic just for the sake of doing it. I, I, I've i toiled in the immigration mines long enough to know that, no, these people are every bit as awful and every bit as just horrifying as they claim to be. And it's just, oh my God, if this starts to go nationwide, if this starts to happen in more cities... I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I I keep waiting. I mean, for everybody who was all twerked over states mandating lockdowns and mask wearings, well, guess what? There's federal agents in Portland right now, nameless, that are just acting with impunity. Uh, where are y'all at? Like, it's happening. It's, it's fucking happening over there in Portland right now. The thing that you were afraid of is happening in Portland. So where are you at? I, I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by this and I'm baffled by the amount of people that want to support it. Like I just, no, it's not okay. It should scare the fuck out of you. It really should because you might want to fight this now before they show up in your city because it's not going to be a good day. I mean, these are not nice people. These are not people that are known for having super high regard for human life. They're, they're bad people that will not be held accountable for anything that they do. Like, I cannot begin to tell you how many lawsuits have been filed against CPB for the way they have treated immigrants, and nothing sticks. Nothing fucking sticks. They face no no repercussions. It's absolutely nuts what these agencies can get away with. And so, if this is the thing that brings everybody to the table on that, okay, but my God, I do not 
want any of you to ever have to deal with any of these organizations because like I said, they, good luck, good fucking luck. But moving on to the last thing that I want to talk about, which also just makes me kind of shake my damn head. And honestly, I didn't even want to talk about this story because honestly, it just, I, I thought the whole thing was stupid to begin with. And then people started digging in on each side and it just became this whole intra fight within libertarianism about a tweet. Like, let me just go ahead and start at the beginning and read the damn tweets and then give you my thoughts about the arguments that have erupted around the tweets. On July 10th, Joe Jorgensen, who is the LP nominee for president this election cycle, tweeted out, it is not enough to be passively not racist. We must be actively anti-racist. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Vote Gold. She explained herself a little more in a follow-up tweet saying, Black Lives Matter means standing in solidarity with a mourning Black community as we fight together to end qualified immunity, police brutality, sentencing disparities, and the war on drugs, not support of any organization by that name. Obviously, this generated a shit ton of controversy in the libertarian community. And the reason I didn't, I mean, I tweeted about it because I have some questions and we'll get there in a minute when I kind of explain my take on this. But ultimately, I was just going to let it go because, I mean, if you're on Twitter for any amount of time, Eventually, you're going to say something that is phrased less than artfully or is kind of sloppy or people take it in a way that you didn't mean it. It happens. Everybody fucks up on Twitter. I've done it. You've probably done it too. It happens. And so I personally wasn't going to make a big deal out of this. Like, okay, she messed up. She explained herself in the second tweet. All right, whatever. And then actually... The next tweet after that, the the top reply, is actually from the Libertarian Party, and I want to read theirs too. As a reminder to many, there is indeed a nonprofit organization called Black Lives Matter that espouses itself as Marxist. There is also a nationwide movement of millions seeking policing and justice reform that goes by the same name. One matters far more than the other. I wanted to point out that tweet because I can understand that sentiment. Like, I draw a distinction between the phrase Black Lives Matter and what I call BLM Inc., which Black Lives Matter Inc. is expressly Marxist in their principles. They make no bones about it. It's right there on the front page. I mean, that that is what it is. But the phrase Black Lives Matter predates the organization. I mean, that goes all the way back to Ferguson. So I am more than willing to separate out the phrase from the organization. And in the service of making an argument over what words should be rustled away from the Marxists and which ones shouldn't, I think there should be something along the lines of trying to take back Black Lives Matter. Because like I said, it predates the organization. It's about something that's a lot wider than what the organization represents. But anyway, I was like, okay, whatever. It is what it is. But a lot of people latched onto that as trying to say like, oh, okay, so you're tweeting out support for a Marxist organization, which, I mean, again, she explained herself. Okay, cool. You're not supporting BLM Inc. You're supporting the phrase, the the concept Black Lives Matter, whatever. Cool. But a lot of people kind of stayed with that. And a lot of people were like, oh my God. Anyway, the thing that I latched onto and a couple of other people did too is... Two things here, the must, 
which again, since when are we in the business of telling people what they must do? And for me, it's the anti-racist part. And this is the one that seems to have generated the most kind of, I don't, I, I, I try to assume that people make arguments in good faith. I try, I really do. But this has been the one that's kind of created the most controversy, more so than just the, the Black Lives Matter part. And that is because there seems to be a little bit of a dichotomy here. And let me back up and say that what Jorgensen is tweeting here, the original tweet, she didn't actually write that. It's actually from a piece that Jonathan Banks did back in 2014 or 2015. But the origins of that quote go a little deeper than that. It's actually a slight bastardization of an Angela Davis quote, which let me read you the Angela Davis quote. In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, which like I said, that it's a, it, they're similar enough that I don't, I don't know if Jonathan Banks knew about the Angela Davis quote, whatever, but close enough to basically be noteworthy. So we all kind of had this bizarre, well, not all of us. Some people tried their best to explain their position and other people tried their best to not understand the very clearly stated position. But here's the thing. It seems to me that there are people who are using anti-racism as simply a word to mean do not be a racist. Anti-racism is a little more than that. Anti-racism is an ideology. I mean, especially as it is constructed right now, it, it is a fully fleshed out ideology and it does require a lot of active activity. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. So I, I don't know if people were being kind of either not knowing about anti-racism or just trying to, I, and I've seen people make this argument of, well, we have to reclaim the word. And I'm just like, okay, first of all, I decided that I would go on a little quest to try to find out whose word is it anyway? Like who came up with the word anti-racism? And I wasn't really able to come up with anything because nobody really seems to know the origin, like who, who coined this phrase, who started using it, like who popularized it. Nobody really seems to know. And outside of like, current like super current context I mean I'm talking about like going back to like the past 50 60 years to see like okay where where did this word come from so didn't really get anywhere there but here's the thing and this is where so many people got mad at this part and and that is that a lot of us myself included took it as the part that we must be anti-racist as saying that we must ascribe to this ideology let me set aside the whole Marxism thing for a second, because to me, that's secondary. Like I said, you could support Black Lives Matter without supporting Black Lives Matter, Inc. That to me, there's no dichotomy there. That's that's kind of simple because there are two separate things. Anti-racism as an ideology requires you to center race above everything and kind of requires you to see racism everywhere in everything. And this reminds me a lot of my problems with intersectional feminism in that intersectional feminism requires you to center your gender in everything and see 
misogyny in everything. And for me, I am not ever going to ascribe to an ideology that reduces me to the sum of my parts. I am not my melanin level. I am not my genitalia. These are not accomplishments of mine and they tell you very little about me. So anything that tries to seek to reduce an individual down to biology is immediately a no-go for me and it should be a no-go for any libertarian. It's anti-individual. It's just, it's, it's horrible. It's just, no, you should reject that as out of hand. And like I said, I don't know if everybody who saw the word anti-racist automatically clicked in their head that like anti-racism as an ideology, but as an ideology, it's fucking the most anti-libertarian thing in the world. So there are some of us, most notably Camille, who, who spent so much time on Twitter trying to explain his argument to people and people just being like willfully obtuse about it. I just, I'm, I'm still, I'm still baffled. Like, I don't, I don't understand why people aren't understanding this point, but there seems to be this counter argument. Well, actually there's two counter arguments. Let me start with the first one. And that is like I referenced before this idea that, well, that's what the word means now. And that's how it's being used now, but we have to take it back from those people and make it mean what we want it to mean, which is just basically oppose racism. And to me, I, I don't understand the point of that. Like why, waste time and energy trying to reclaim a word when you could just make another word and have that be what you want anti-racism to mean. Like, why not just create your own word and your own ideology as a counterpoint to anti-racism to say, okay, you can be, you, you, you can be not a racist. You can support certain things, but you don't have to go bald out anti-racist and do Kind of what is being prescribed, because let me let me try to explain. I, I found a good quote that I think encapsula encapsulates what anti-racism means right now in 2020. This is from Robert J. Pattinson, who is an African-American studies professor at Georgetown University. Anti-racism is an active and conscious effort to work against the multidimensional aspects of racism. He also added that we need to collectively shift our thinking of racism as conscious internal overt actions to unconscious covert and unintentional actions. He added that while racism can happen individually, it often happens institutionally. So here's what anti-racism is here in 2020. And this is what is in like white fragility. This is what's in Kendi's book, how not to be, how to be an anti-racist is this idea that racism exists everywhere in everything and that you can be a racist without even knowing that you're being a racist. Which, what the fuck? Like, are, like, wow. Like, basically, if you are white, which, I mean, let's, let's keep it real. That's what this is about. That's why it's called white fragility and not everybody fragility. That you are a racist, no matter what, even if you think you aren't, you are. And that you are somehow perpetrating racism even when you think you're not because you just are because that's because like you're white and you just can't help yourself because you've been indoctrinated into, into the system that just makes everything you do unconsciously racist and you have to somehow fix this in yourself so obviously this is something that goes a little deeper than just saying hey i want to abolish qi or i want police reform or i want 
systemic change in our criminal justice system. This is something that is insidious on a very deep level. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of baffled as to why anybody would want to try to reclaim this word that is becoming increasingly more toxic by the day. Because that's another argument I've seen is that, oh, well, we have to take it and redefine it now before the masses find out about it. Let me tell you something. The masses have already found out what anti-racism means. I mean, there's right now, there are people having to go through like anti-racism courses at work. Like people already know what it means. There's plenty of people who know what the word anti-racism means. You're not, you're not battling for the soul of the word. Like it's, it's gone. The word is gone. Like, I don't even understand why you want to reclaim it other than, and again, I try to engage this stuff in good faith, but I'll go ahead and say it just because I got, got to speak truth. It's what I do here. Wanting to reclaim the word because it's a trendy word right now. And because everybody wants to talk about anti-racism. So you want to glom onto that word because that's the word that's already in the zeitgeist, which I just, I don't. Personally, I'm perfectly happy letting people have anti-racism as a word, as an ideology. Let them wear that. Let that be the albatross around their neck. Don't, don't try to save them. Why are you trying to save them? Like, go, if you want to be some race essentialist asshole, go be it. Because honestly, there's almost like a cottage industry cropping up around people writing pieces about this whole concept, about specifically white fragility, the book, and around the whole concept of anti-racism, basically saying, yeah, this is some racist bullshit right here, because it is. If you're reducing somebody down to their race and making negative assumptions about them based on their race, that's fucking racism. It's uh, it's almost like anti-fascists Calling themselves, like, you know, we, we make fun of Antifa calling themselves anti-fascists when they engage in fascist activities. Like, just because you put anti in front of something doesn't mean that all of a sudden that's what is, like, anti-racist. Like, no, this shit's pretty racist. Honestly, if you sit down and you really read it and you see what the prescription is, what the applied activities that you are meant to perform to show that you are an anti-racist, it's pretty fucking racist. It's really really racist. And so I, I don't even understand why anybody wants to fight for that word. And then the other argument that I've seen crop up for the, the people, the, the anti-anti-racist people that get slammed with this is, well, if you're not anti-racist, you're a racist. First off, that's Kendi's argument. Good job, guys. You just made Kendi's argument that he makes on like page nine of his book. And to be sure, there is a very distinct line drawn between being non-racist and being anti-racist. There are two separate things. And I think what people are wanting to turn anti-racism into is non-racist. But the people that espouse anti-racism are very, very clear on this topic. It is not non-racist. It is not just simply not being a racist. It is going out and finding instances of racism in order to root them out. Like, it, it's an active thing. It's not a passive thing. It's so, I'm just, I'm, I'm so, I don't, I don't even understand. Like, I don't even understand why I have to have this conversation because the whole thing's stupid, but then it blew up and people wanted to have arguments. Just, oh my God. Like, I don't even understand why I need to claim this word, but 
My broader point here that I want to make, and there is a broader point here, is that libertarians don't need to reclaim the word anti-racist because all of the things that libertarians want anti-racism to mean as a concept already fall under the banner of libertarian. Like, we don't need another word. You have libertarian. I already have that label. I don't need to put anti-racist on me. That, that's part of being a libertarian. So I don't, I don't understand this. Like, we have the track record to back this up, too. Like, there's nobody that can say that there's been anybody more so than libertarians who have gone out here and fought for the things, specific policy reforms that are anti-racist. I mean, I don't, like, I don't even understand. You don't need a separate word. We have libertarian. That's the word. There you go. There it is. There's the label that you need that should explain to everybody that you do not support certain activities. You do not support certain ideologies. You do not support certain behaviors. I mean, it's right there in the LP party platform. What our views are on racism and bigotry. Like, what other fucking title do you think you need to explain to people? I don't get it. I, I, I genuinely don't get it. Other than wanting to just appropriate a trendy word because it's trendy and now maybe, like, the cool kids will like you. I don't know. Like I said, it's a word that's becoming increasingly more toxic, so I would stay the hell away from it myself. But that's me, and I tend to think about things in long-term sorts of things. So, yeah, that happened. And if you want more ranting on that particular topic and on the topic of Camille Foster, um, he did an interview over for a reason with Nick Gillespie where he talks about this too. And he might explain it a little more articulately than I. Wait, was that racist? Shit. Um, anyway, yeah, if you want a little more explanation, go listen to that too, because he makes a lot of the same points I make. And I, if you disagree, fine. Whatever. I Like I said, I still think this whole thing is stupid, 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 and that there's more important things to worry about. But it is a conversation that has to be had because, you know, this is a conversation that was had. And this is my podcast and this is what I cover. So I kind of can't get away with not talking about it. So I've said pretty much everything I want to say on that. And so on this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening, as always. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.